It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio. You're listening to Solace Radio. All righty. Um, let's go over to Genesis chapter 41. Because where we left off is our our virtuous Hebrew Joseph is headed to prison. And, and just kind of to recap, where I left off with this was I'm, I suggested to you that as he's going into prison, it has to have dawned on him that twice before his coat has gotten him in trouble. How he looked outwardly has gotten him in trouble. And not only that, um, the fact that he shared with brothers that were not ready to hear what he had to share, the fact he shared that with them on two occasions, had also contributed to his problems. Now, um, you know, I, I said this earlier, but I want to reiterate. We can look at this several different ways. First of all, as we see the story, as it pans out, if he hadn't shared those things and he wouldn't have been sold into slavery, then he wouldn't have gone to Egypt and he, you know, all these things wouldn't happen. We could make that argument. I could also make the argument that um, perhaps if he had shared it a little more discreetly and diplomatically, <laughs> things might have gone a little different. You know, as I said, a lot of different ways to look at it, but here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. I believe that Joseph, it has to dawn on him that what he shared, when he shared it, how he shared it, has contributed to the fact that he is now sitting in prison falsely accused. All right? And so the principle is, or the moral of the story, I guess, is, is that he goes in a wise young man, he goes into prison a discreet young man. But by the time he gets out of prison, he's going to be even wiser, and he's going to be even more discreet. And where is he going to learn this? In prison because I don't believe that he saw prison coming. I don't believe he saw being sold into slavery. I don't think he saw that when God shared these dreams with him. I don't think he saw being thrown into a pit. Do you? And yet, as we're going to see, that all factors into this. And so, what can we learn? That God will show us something sometimes. He'll show us the end, but he doesn't always show us the middle. He doesn't show us all of the details of the process that leads to the conclusion. But what do we do? We try to define the process for him. Well, that's another story. But anyway, Genesis 41, verse 1. We're going to read that in just a minute, but I want to, before I forget, I want to write the name of the Torah portion up there that Genesis 41, 1 begins, called Miketz. Miketz, which means at the end. Now, before we read that, one other point we need to make about Joseph in this story. When he's in prison, his gifts, his talents, his abilities again shine through, and the, <clears throat> the, the head of the jail puts him in charge of the jail. And so, in, in a matter of speaking, Joseph ends up being the head trustee. He's running everything in the prison. Well, one night, a couple of his cellmates, the butler and the baker, they have some troubling dreams. And they wake up from their dreams and they're disturbed. And so as the story goes, Joseph tells them to relate the dreams to him and he gives them an interpretation. The interpretation for the baker is in three days, you're going to be executed. But to the butler, he says, in three days, you're going to be restored back to Pharaoh's house. And just as Joseph uh, predicted, these dreams came to pass just as he said. And so the butler goes back to Pharaoh's house. And so on his way out the door, Joseph asks the butler to do what? Remember me. And what have we learned about that? What that means, actually? To speak up for me. Point is, Joseph doesn't want to hang around in prison. He doesn't like it there. He wants to get out of the prison. Duh. So he asks the butler to speak up for him, to speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. So when the butler leaves and goes back to Pharaoh's house, what does he do? Forgets him. And that brings us to Genesis 41.1. That begins, then it came to pass at the end, or miketz, of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. So at the end of two full years, miketz, at the end. Now, if you'll think back to this morning, why are we studying this? Because we want to understand, does, is there something in the beginning 
that speaks to us and to our unique situation, those of us who are gathered here tonight, does it, is there anything in the beginning that speaks to our unique situation here at the end? And here in the book of beginnings, we have a Torah portion that is titled at the end. So we're going to spay, we're going to spay, we're going to pay special attention to this particular Torah portion in the words. But Joseph has been in prison two full years after what? After interpreting the dreams for the butler and the baker, the butler being sent back to Pharaoh's house. And so Joseph has had two more years to sit there and languish in prison. Prison. Again, I'm going to suggest to you very strongly that Joseph learns how to be wise and Joseph learns how to be even more discreet. So then, when Pharaoh has this dream, please notice that this is something that Joseph has no control over. He's sitting there in prison, perhaps wondering if he's ever going to get out. You know, what else I got to do? You know, he's probably sitting there wondering if he's ever going to get out. Are the dreams going to ever come true? Is what God's shown him ever going to come to fruition? Maybe not. And he sits there two more years after that. But something he has no control over happens, and that is Pharaoh has a dream. And I won't take the time to read it all. You can read it for yourself. But Pharaoh dreams a dream where he's standing by the river, and he sees seven fat cows coming up out of the Nile. And these seven fat cows are followed by seven lean cows who swallow up the plump cows or the fatted calves. And then he wakes up and he's like, you know, what's going on here? He goes back to dream. And he dreams again. And then in this dream, he dreams seven plump ears of grain coming up on one stalk. And they are followed by seven lean ears of grain that swallow the seven plump ears or full ears up. And these seven lean ears are made so, specifically it says, because they have been scorched in some translations. They have been blasted in other translations by an east wind. All right. And this east wind initiates, as we're going to learn, a time of trouble. So when he wakes up from his dream, he calls for all the soothsayers, magicians, and all the people who are supposed to be able to interpret these things and then are unable to. And so then the butler remembers his sin. And he recalls to Pharaoh that there's this Hebrew down in prison that a couple of years ago he interpreted a dream for me and it came to pass just as he said. And so Joseph is summoned. He is going to appear before the king. Now, I want you to notice what Joseph does not do. He does not rush out to find his best talit and the biggest tefillin he has, and he doesn't get his sidur. What he does, it's, the Bible says that he, he washes, he changes his clothes, and he shaves. Now, those of us living in the West, guys, I mean, we wouldn't think too much about that. I mean, if we're going to appear before a king, we'd want to take a bath. We want to change our clothes and we want to shave. But we're not talking about a culture, a Western culture. We're talking about an Eastern culture. And specifically, we're talking about a good Hebrew boy here. So for him to shave catches my attention. In fact, the Hebrew word, the phrase that is translated and he shaved, the word that is used there infers that not only did he shave his beard, but he shaved his head. And he shaved all the other hair off of his body as well. Now, question is, does that sound like something a Hebrew would do? But it does sound like something an Egyptian would do. Some commentaries, and you can take it for what it's worth because they come from commentaries. This is not in the scripture, okay? But some commentaries say that not only did Joseph shave all the hair off of his body after the manner of Egyptians, but he also painted his eyes after the manner of Egyptians. Now, why would a Hebrew boy do that? I think because he wants to get out of prison. Now, it could be argued that he is going to appear before the Egyptian king, and so he's going to follow the protocol of the Egyptian court, and I would go along with that. But I also suggest that maybe, maybe part of the reason that he wants to appear Egyptian, even though, even though everybody knows he's Hebrew, I'm going to suggest to you that maybe it has something to do with the fact that he knows that twice before how I looked has gotten me in trouble. Twice before what I was wearing has gotten me in trouble. So maybe he wants to eliminate any possibility of offending anybody. And so he makes himself to appear as an Egypt, as an Egyptian as much so as is possible. Again, keeping in mind that everybody knows he's a Hebrew, but anyway, the bottom line is this. It's definitely inferred very heavily that Joseph tries to make himself look Egyptian. 
Now, when he goes and he appears before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh relates the dreams to him, Joseph says that my God is going to give you an answer of peace. And he says, the two dreams actually are one, and here's what they mean. And you all know the story, but he says there's going to be seven plentiful years, followed by seven years of lack so severe that you will forget about the seven plentiful years. And how are those seven years of lack initiated? By a wind that comes from the east and begins to blow west. Now, all commentaries that I've read, Jewish, Christian, what have you, say that this east wind that's referred to here, and they have an Arabic name that they give it, but the wind, they say, originates in the deserts of Arabia. It starts in the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula, and it begins to blow west, and it destroys everything fruitful in its path. And by the time it finishes blowing, in the, in the dream anyway, nothing fruitful is left. So this is what Joseph tells Pharaoh the dreams are telling him. And so he suggests that what you need to do is you need to find someone who can make provision during the years of plenty against those years of lack. And so Pharaoh looks around the room and he says, you know what, Joseph, I don't see anybody in here who's more wise than you, who's more discreet than you, and who's full of the Spirit of God. So tag, you're it. Now notice that Pharaoh recognizes he's wise, he's discreet, and he's full of the Spirit of God. And so he, he, if you will, anoints him to be the one who is going to be in charge of seeing to it that this pagan, idolatrous nation survives. That's going to be Joseph's job. To see to it to ensure that a pagan, idolatrous nation survives. Now, <clears throat> Pharaoh takes the signet ring off of his hand and he places it on Joseph's finger, saying... Other than myself, there's no one in this country going to be more powerful than you, Joseph. He takes a gold chain and sets it about his neck. He takes garments and places them upon Joseph. And do you think they had tzitzit hanging off the, uh, off the corners? And so Joseph wears Egyptian garb. He's given a ring that signifies he's the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. He has a gold chain set about his neck and also... Pharaoh gives him a new name. That name is Zafnat Paneach, and that is not a Hebrew name. It's an Egyptian name. Zafnat Paneach. I'm going to give you three interpretations of what that name should mean, or what it's believed it means. The first two come from Bible commentators. The first one is the revealer of secrets, the one who causes hidden things to be made known. The second one is, again from Bible commentators, the one who provides the bread of life. Now remember, Joseph is going to point us to who? The Messiah. But as a consequence, who else? The body of Messiah. Because Messiah is the head of the body. But everything that, that pertains to the head is going to consequently pertain to the body. Everything emanates from the head, right? So Zafna Paneach means, according to some anyway, the one who provides the bread of life. But here's the one that I find most interesting. And this one comes from Egyptologists, meaning that they're not necessarily trying to validate the Bible. But Egyptologists say that Zafna Paneach should be translated something like the salvation of the world. Interesting. But don't miss the point. It's not a Hebrew name. It's an Egyptian name. It is an Egyptian name along with the garb, the jewelry, and the ring, it's all intended to do what? To conceal his Hebrew identity. Now remember Proverbs 25, 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But why does he conceal a matter? To provoke us to look for it. It is the glory of kings to search out a matter. God conceals things. And so what do we see happening here? Joseph's Hebrew identity is being concealed beneath a pagan idolatrous Egyptian identity. On top of that, he's given a wife. And his wife happens to be the daughter of the high priest of On or Heliopolis. Heliopolis was the seat of sun worship in Egypt. In other words, our virtuous Hebrew is married into the family that leads the nation, the most powerful nation then on earth, I might add. He's married into the family that leads that nation in idol worship. The worship of the sun, specifically, the chief deity. 
And when Joseph gets in a, a chariot follow, following behind Pharaoh, as he makes his way down the street, what do the Egyptians do? They fall down on their face in obeisance and worship him as if he were a god. Because as far as they're concerned, he's second only to Pharaoh. And as far as they're concerned, Pharaoh is a god. And they worship him in the same manner. Now, does that sound very Hebraic to anybody? No. It sounds paganistic, doesn't it? And so here's my point. At the end of the day, our Hebrew Yosef doesn't look like a Hebrew anymore. He looks like the Egyptian Zafnath Paneach, and which would be something along those lines. He doesn't look like Yosef anymore. He looks like the Egyptian Zafnath Paneach. So let's recap this. He's been given Egyptian clothes to wear. He's been given authority to function as an Egyptian. He's been given an Egyptian name that conceals his Hebrew one. He's been given an Egyptian wife that is not just any spouse, but actually Joseph's father-in-law is the one who leads the country in pagan worship, in idol worship. This is Joseph's in-laws. And what is Joseph's job? To make sure that this pagan idolatrous land survives. And who put him there? Say it. God put him there. God placed him there. Now, in during the seven years of plenty, he, he obviously he sets his mind to fulfill the task that he's been given. And so he has granaries built and stores up grain and he taxes the people to fund this project, but he doesn't tax the priest. And we're not talking about the Levitical priesthood either. We're talking about those pagan priests. He doesn't tax them. Just happens to be, you know, married into that family. All right. And so during these seven plentiful years, he stores up bread so that when the seven years of lack come along, Egypt has bread. Now, also in the course of those seven plentiful years, his wife gives him initially two sons. The first one is Manashe. Manashe to forget because he says, God has caused me to forget all my toil, all the bad stuff, and all my father's house. Now, what's the name of his father? Jacob, who, when he was born again, you remember the night he was wrestling the angel? He gets a new name. What's his new name? Israel. And after he gets that new name, after he's born again, as it were, he never walks the same way again, does he? Israel is his father. Israel is his father's house. He says, though, in a manner of speaking, I'm forgetting all my toil and all my father's house. In other words, it's inferring here that he is putting all the things, the bad things that happened, he's putting them out of his mind. But not only the bad things, he's putting all the dreams out of his mind too. And how do I know that? Because it's not until later when his brothers show up and he sees them that it says, and he remembered the dreams. He put the dreams out of his mind. He forgot his father's. He, in a sense, tried. And this is what it says to me. He says, you know what? Apparently I'm here and this is where I'm going to be. So I'm just going to forget my father's house because the next son, Ephraim, he says, which means fruitful. He says, because God, he names him that because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, inferring what? Well, I'm here in the land of my affliction, but God is blessing me here. So I'm going to forget all these things having to do with my father's house. And so we understand that Joseph, the Hebrew, to some degree, to some degree, is assimilated into a pagan culture. I'm not saying that he started worshiping idols. I'm not saying that he became a pagan. I'm not saying that at all. Inside is still a son of Israel. Inside, he knows who his father is, but outwardly, does he look like one of them? Not at all. He looks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. He functions as an Egyptian. And keep in mind, his main function is to see to it that Egypt survives the seven years of lack. And how are these seven years of lack started? Because something over here in the Arabian desert begins to stir and then it begins to blow westward 
And by the time it gets through blowing, everything fruitful is destroyed. And the entire world of that time is plunged into famine, into lack, into trouble, into, dare I say, tribulation. Now, during this time of lack, two years into it, as a matter of fact, the Bible says, we've got this little family over here in Canaan. That if they don't get food, the, the scripture bears out, they're going to die. They're going to perish. And so Israel says, I've heard that there's bread in Egypt. And so I need you 10 boys to go down to Egypt and fetch bread. And so he sends them on this mission. And so they go down to Egypt, southward and westward, down into Egypt. And they are ushered into the presence of the man who is personally responsible, apparently, in dispersing this bread. Unknown to them, it happens to be their long-lost brother, Joseph. But do they recognize him? No, not at all. To them, he looks like Zafnat Paneach, this Egyptian Gentile dog. But he immediately recognizes them. Teaching us what? That it's not because of the passing of time that they don't recognize him. That has nothing to do with it. It's because he doesn't look like the Hebrew Joseph. He looks like the Egyptian Zafnat Paneach. And they have no reason to believe that there's anything Hebrew about this person. In fact, he doesn't even speak to them in their own language. He speaks to them through an interpreter. Now, what does that tell me? The Bible kind of bears it out that even though he's really moved and 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 perhaps, and I'm, I'm just going to speculate here, perhaps he has to really constrain himself and refrain from telling them who he is. But the point is, the first time they show up, he doesn't tell them who he is. Why? Because he's wise and he's discreet. And he's already learned that they've already proven to me once before that they weren't ready to hear what I had to share. So he doesn't reveal himself. And yet he understands everything they're saying. He understands everything that's going on between them, but never lets on that he is their brother. He keeps the ruse up again. Outwardly, he doesn't look like a Hebrew. He looks like an Egyptian. And again, he still knows who he is because when they walked through the door, he remembered the dreams, the dreams from the past that he had apparently put out of his mind, forgotten, distanced himself to some degree from because he had to some degree assimilated into this Gentile culture. But when they walked in the door, he remembered the dreams. Now, let me add this too. I don't think that he woke up in the morning, that morning thinking, well, you know what? I think today is going to be the day my brothers show up. I think he was as much surprised by their showing up as they're going to be later on when he shares with them who he is. In other words, I still don't believe he saw this coming. But when they walked through the door, and why did they walk through the door? Because an east wind had started to blow, and it was blowing west, and it plunged the world into chaos. And that was the environment that provoked Israel's sons to be sent before Zaphnapaneah in order to see, to see if they can gain bread. And when they walked through that door, he remembered the dreams. And as they're bowing before him, he remembers the dreams and perhaps begins to start putting things together. Now, he inquires about their father and if they have any more brothers. Of course, he knows they do. And he tells them as they leave, he says, now, I don't want you to come back and show up before me anymore until you bring this other brother you're talking about. And he keeps Shimon or Simeon as surety for that. So they go on their way. <clears throat> they go back home and they have the bread and, you know, and they finally they run out of bread. And so Israel says, well, you've got to go down and get some more bread. And they say, well, we can't do that because the man said we can't show up unless we take our other brother. And he Jacob doesn't want that to happen because if he loses this son, he's just going to die a, a, a broken man. But reluctantly, he gives in and Benjamin goes along with the other nine brothers and they go back and he they appear before Joseph again a second time. And still he does not reveal to, him, to them who he is. He sends them away again, but this time he has a cup of divination. That's what the Bible says. A cup of divination placed in Benjamin's sack so that as they go down the road, he's going to send a servant to fetch his cup with the threat that whoever has the cup is going to become his slave. Now, Judah, the one who said, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Judah has had to make himself surety for Benjamin, telling his father, if he doesn't come back, I'm not coming back. And so when they appear before Zaphna Paneach the third time, 
It's under the threat that Benjamin is going to become a slave. And so what happens, Judah has to step up and say, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Because you see, and I'm paraphrasing what Judah said, we messed up. We messed up. And, and the bottom line is this. You can't take him and make him your slave. Take me instead. And here's why. Because we have a father that if you take the young boy, our father is going to die brokenhearted. And so please take me instead. It's at this point that Joseph sends all the Egyptians out of the room. And it's just him and his brothers in the room. And not an Egyptian, but in Hebrew, he says, Ani Yosef, I'm your brother. They were stunned at first, a little scared, but he says, don't be afraid. Come close. Because see, God sent me before you to preserve life. He understood. He understood why he was in Egypt. He understood why, even though outwardly he looked like a Gentile. And yet he understood. He always knew who he was inwardly. He knew the moment they walked through that door that they were his brethren, even though his brethren did not recognize him as the same. He understood what was going to happen to them if they did not come to him. He understood that this, these years of lack were going to be grievous. And if his brethren didn't get bread, they would die. He understood all that. He saw everything, but he waited. He waited to reveal his secret until his brethren were ready to hear that secret. And what prompted him to know that the time was right, I'll suggest to you, that's when he, when he saw that his brother Judah and the other brethren loved their father just as much as he did. When he understood and was convinced that they had a love for the Father that was just as genuine as he did. And in the midst of this lack and in the midst of this tribulation, they had basically repented of their deeds. Then and only then did he say, hey guys, <laughs> I'm your brother, and reveal to them who he was. Now, when he did that, even though they were a little stunned at first, he assures them by saying, you know, I understand that God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. How long did it take for that restoration to occur? It was almost instantaneous. The reconciliation between these two disconnected peoples, if you will, these two disconnected brothers, the reconciliation and the restoration occurred almost immediately. And who orchestrated it? Did Joseph? No. Did Judah? No. But the Father in heaven. Because there were, there were circumstances that were beyond anybody's control that had brought this, that had created this environment in which these two brothers could be restored back to one another. But now Joseph is the one who made the decision when to reveal himself to his brethren. And it wasn't the first time they appeared before him. If you'll allow me, it wasn't the first day. It wasn't the second time, and if you'll allow me, it wasn't the second day, but it was the third time they appeared before him. If you don't mind, I'll put it this way. It was on the third day. All right? Now, in this Torah portion where Joseph reveals himself to his brethren, the accompanying uh, haftarah is taken from a very, very interesting uh, chapter. I know that a few of you know, but for those of you who don't, it's taken from Ezekiel chapter 37. Wow. You see, a long time ago, some of the rabbis understood that the story of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers and the family, the two becoming one again, that somehow or another this was prophetic and speaking into the end about the restoration of all things. And so they made the decision to take portions of Ezekiel 37 and to make it the Haftarah reading for the Torah portion in which Joseph reveals himself to his brethren. And specifically, let me turn over there real quick. The Haftarah begins in verse 15 and 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as for you, son of man, take a stick. But we know what that Hebrew word actually is, don't we? It's better translation, tree. Take a tree for yourself and ride on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another tree and ride on it 
for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And then as we continue to read, these two trees are to become one. And God is demonstrating that he's going to take Judah and he's going to take the house of Joseph, these two disconnected peoples who have something in common and yet who have been disconnected, but he is going to put them back and make the two one once again in the land. And so it was understood rabbinically centuries ago that the story of Joseph was predicting when the house of Joseph when that tree of Joseph and when the house of Judah, that tree of Judah, were going to be put back together and once again, there would just be one family. They would be reconciled. They would be restored with one another. But what did one of those brothers look like outwardly? Did he look like a Hebrew? He looked like an Egyptian. He looked more like the nations than he did an Israelite. And actually, he was functioning more in a Gentile way because that was his job. And to some degree, he had assimilated into that culture. And who put him there? God put him there. And so later on, when uh, Jacob dies, and you know Jacob has left instructions, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. I want to be buried in the land of my fathers. And you know Joseph has to go to Pharaoh and ask permission in order to go bury his father in the land of Canaan, which is odd for the man who's the second most powerful man in the land of Egypt. He has to go ask permission. And in fact, when and when he goes to bury his father and his brothers go with him, not only that, but Pharaoh's guards and all the elders of Egypt go. And guess who can't go? All the Israelite children and their herds. So you see what already is beginning to happen here? Because they realize this guy is our is our meal ticket. <laughs> We've been blessed before this because of this guy. We can't let this guy go. So some things are already beginning to take shape here. But nonetheless, when they come back from burying their father, the brothers are really concerned now that Joseph is going to exact his vengeance on him now that the father's out of the picture. But he doesn't. He says, look, guys, just relax. He said, because I understand something. What you intended for harm, God intended for good. So in other words, Joseph understands at this point in time, and we're to understand that when Joseph was placed in that cistern, that was all part of God's plan. When Joseph was sold into slavery, that was part of God's plan. When he was sent to prison, falsely accused, that was all part of God's plan for good. And when he was elevated to supreme power, that was all part of God's plan. But if that's true, then it must also be true that for Joseph to be made to look like an Egyptian, to be given an Egyptian name that concealed his Hebrew identity, for him to be married into this family that we talked about, for him to be functioning in the role of the one who is trying to see to it that Egypt actually survives, that all has to be part of God's plan too. Do you think that part of it took God by surprise? No. It all had to factor into God's plan. And so the bottom line is this. Joseph ends up in that position, looking the way he is, functioning the way he has to. It's all part of God's plan. But what was God's plan? Why did he bless Joseph in the land of his affliction? So that Joseph would be in place that when a time of tribulation would come, that he would have his man already empowered to see to it that all Israel is saved. Because if Joseph is not in Egypt doing what he's doing, functioning as he is functioning, what happens to Israel? They die. Well, couldn't God have just rained bread down from heaven and took care of them right then and there? Yeah, he could have, but did he? God's purposes were to show something to us. That you've got these two disconnected peoples who are who have been at enmity with one another and yet who share something in common. But nevertheless, they've been separated. They've been disconnected from one another. And one of them looks outwardly, at least, like the nations, is living to the nations. You realize that God basically sent Joseph into the nations to bless him among the nations. As a matter of fact, the most powerful nation then on earth so that he would be raised up to see to it that all Israel might be saved so that all Israel might be restored. That was all part of God's plan. Now, in Ezekiel 37, 
it describes those two disconnected peoples who are who yet have something in common. Joseph, I believe, saw that in his brethren, and specifically Judah, he saw that Judah loved his father just as much as Joseph did. And despite all of their differences, despite all of the things that had happened, he saw that Judah, now a repentant Judah, a remorseful Judah, loved the father just as much as Joseph did. And so the things that separated them, things that distanced them from one another, somehow or another, that was the common denominator and provoked Joseph to reveal who he was. And it brought them together. And when Joseph revealed who he was, his brethren were able to see past all the trappings that are outward and see that inside, that's our brother. That's a, that's a son of Israel. Now, there's something about Ezekiel 37 that two things actually I want to point out. And one of them is another one of those things that I can't prove, and it has to remain in the realm of speculation. But you recall how Ezekiel 37 begins, don't you? It's a valley filled with dry bones. And the prophet asks, who are these? Or he, he says, uh, and, and then he's asked, I should say, uh, can these, these bones live? And the prophet says, well, Lord, only you know. He says, I want you to prophesy to the wind. And so he prophesies to the wind, and the wind blows, and, and the bones come together. And it's followed by sinew and flesh until they stand up as a mighty army. And this is the whole house of Israel. And of course, this segues from that into the two trees becoming one. Now, here's my question, or here's my thought. There is a man who, before he died, said, when you go up out of this place, I please don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Do you remember what that guy's name was? Joseph. Is it possible that these dead, dry bones lying in this valley are to remind us of the one who was sent into the nations, the one who was dispatched to the nations, and there he, God raised him up to be the one that he would use to see to it that all Israel might be saved. Now, there is a passage in Jeremiah that refers to the whole house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so I'm suggesting to you that maybe in Ezekiel 37, these bones that come together and the whole house of Israel is the house of Joseph. It's to remind us of those bones of Joseph that he said, don't leave my bones here, but take them up. And do you remember where they were buried eventually? Shechem. Shechem. In the New Testament, it's called Sichar. And in John chapter 4, Yeshua and some of his disciples are headed up to the Galilee and they have to pass through Samaria. And you know about the Samaritans, right? Didn't the Jews just love them? And why didn't the Jews like these people? Because at best, they were considered to be half-breeds. They were considered to be, at best, those who had intermingled with some of those Israelites of old. But these people more resembled the nations, the pagans, and had pagan practices. They didn't worship on the mountain you were supposed to worship on. They didn't keep the practices that you were supposed to keep. And so Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. But on this particular day, Yeshua is passing and his disciples are passing through Samaria. And Yeshua stops at Jacob's well, which was near, very near the plot of ground that was given to Joseph at a place called Sichar, or we would know it's Shechem or Shechem. So that means that Joseph's tomb is very nearby. Now, while he's there at the well, there's this Samaritan woman who comes down and he asks her to give him something to drink and she's taken aback because here's a Jew asking me for something to drink. Why would you, a Jew who has no dealings with this, these Samaritans, why would you ask me to give you something to drink? He said, if, if you knew who was speaking to you, you'd be asking me for something to drink. And the conversation goes on and it ends up talking about the Messiah. Conversation goes and talks about the Messiah and the, he says, I'm the one you're talking to. The one you're talking about is me. But the conversation kind of centers around this topic. When the Messiah comes, we know he's going to kind of rectify all these things and reconcile these things, you know, about the differences we have. Because we say that we, we worship on this mountain and we do things this way. But the Jews say you got to worship on that mountain and you do things that way. And so we got these two disconnected groups who have two views of how God is to be worshipped. And what does the Messiah say to her? He says, well, you worship what you don't know. You worship something you don't know, but salvation is of the Jews. But nevertheless, I tell you, the day is coming and now is when those that worship 
the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm going to make a suggestion to you, and I, I, this is just an idea, but it seems to me what he might, he's addressing here is, if, if I could say it this way, maybe he's saying something like this. You Samaritans, you don't know what you're doing. Now, you've got some spirit. You're, maybe your heart's in the right place, but you're not doing things right because, see, the Jews, we know what we worship. But we also understand that the Jews didn't have the spirit in the right place. They didn't have the heart in the right place. So is it possible that this little story is going on in the land given to Joseph, not too far from where Joseph's bones are buried, and he's talking to a people who are disconnected from the Jews? The Jews consider them to be pagans, and it's because they do things that would be associated with pagans. And yet some of these people are some of the first to regard Yeshua as the Messiah. Does that sound remotely familiar to anybody? So in Ezekiel 37, is it possible, is it possible, I'm not making this dogma, but is it possible that those bones that are lying in that valley are to remind us of some specific bones? And that is the bones of Joseph, the house of Joseph. And the house of Joseph is going to undergo a revival. But it's not the revival that Benny Hinn keeps talking about or Rod Parsley. The revival that the Bible speaks of has been going on right under their noses because you and I, something that was hidden from us, is now being revealed to us. And by the way, look around. Look around and get a good look at everybody and see how many people in here look like a Hebrew to you. Not many. (laughs) I'll suggest to you that outwardly you and I look more like the nation's. That outwardly, you and I look more like just to everybody else who's a Gentile. Agreed? But inwardly, on the inside, we know who we are, don't we? And not only that, but we know that we've got some brethren who won't recognize us as their brethren. And why won't they recognize us as their brethren? Because we look like Egyptians. Not only that, but we act like Egyptians. We speak like Egyptians. But... Who put us here? Maybe you've asked yourself this question. You know, why, Father, why did you, why did you, why did you put me in this situation? I mean, why did you let this happen? How come I was raised this certain way, doing all these pagan Easter, Christmas, all these different things? Why did you permit that to happen? Is it possible that all these things happened because he was concealing something? But if he conceals something, it's with the idea of provoking someone to look for it. You see, our brethren understand that there's something, there's a missing component in the restoration of all things, and there's a missing brother that has to be located. But they certainly don't see you and I as being that brother. And yet you and I know we're him. (laughs) And some of us, and I'm saying this respectfully, and I know that people are going to disagree with this particular point, but some of us feel like it's absolutely mandatory that we reveal everything right here and right now. I'll suggest to you that that can get you thrown in a pit. I'm saying, I'm suggesting that we should learn from Joseph and learn how to be wise and be discreet and to be discerning of the times and understand when it's time to reveal our secrets. In the meantime, what do we should be, what should we be doing? I think like Joseph, we should be storing up bread. We should be storing up bread because you and I know that there is a, there's a time of lack coming. There's a time of famine coming. And, and according to the dream, what's going to initiate that time of famine, that time of tribulation? Well, something is going to start stirring in the deserts of Arabia, and it's going to begin to blow west. And by the time it gets through blowing, the entire world is going to be plunged into chaos. And it's going to threaten the very existence of Israel. So are we to believe that God's going to have Joseph positioned? Perhaps he won't look like he's supposed to to some. And I'm not condoning participating in pagan practices. I'm not. But I am just saying that in the end, I didn't pick where I was going to be born. I didn't pick my parents. I didn't pick the culture I was going to be born into. I had no control over that. And yet, I believe that every person in this room was placed here at this time for a particular purpose, for such a time as this. I do. I believe that.
let me show you something here. You, God conceals things in order for them to be revealed. You remember this word? Satar? Remember? Nod your head, raise your hand, do something. Let me know. All right. Satar, to conceal. It's the root word in Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But why does he conceal? In order for it to be found. In order for it to be revealed. Now, let me show you another word. Do you notice anything about that word? Everything's the same except we've added an olive to the beginning of the word. And of course, we know we read Hebrew from right to left. That word, or actually I should say that name, is Esther. Esther. Now, her name really wasn't Esther. It was Hadassah. That was her Hebrew name, a myrtle branch. But she was given a Persian name. Why? Because she became the queen of Persia. She was given a pagan Gentile name that concealed her true identity. But why did this happen? Because in Hebrew, this makes perfect sense too. Not only is this a Persian name or a pagan name, if I can use that, associated with Astarte, Ishtar, Easter, but also in Hebrew, Aleph Samach Tavresh can also be Asater or He Concealed. Meaning that the father concealed her. Why would he conceal her true identity beneath something else? Because there was going to be a man by the name of Haman who would arise and try to destroy all of God's people. And so what did God do? He simply positioned that woman. He concealed her as her, as Mordecai said, for such a time as this. So ladies and gentlemen, is it possible that the reason that you and I were born into this culture, not seeing certain things, not understanding things until now, some of you have been believers for 30, 40, maybe longer, 30, 40 years, and it's only been in the last two, three, four, five years that you've seen this Hebraic roots or this Messianic thing or whatever you want to call it. And perhaps you've asked yourself, I know I have, how come I didn't see it before? Because it wasn't time. But if I'm seeing it now, and I've seen the truth of it in the Scripture, then that must mean it's time. And if it's time for me to see some things, if it's time for me to understand why all these things in the past have happened to me, that must mean it's getting time for the sons of God to be revealed. And the reason, one of the reasons that the earth is going through all these convulsions and all these different things is because the earth is anticipating this very thing as well. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. In other words, you and I are living in the times of the restoration of all things. We are right in the middle of it. And God, in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, did not permit you and I to be born in another era. He chose that we, you and I, would be born in this time and to live in such a time as this. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I could get a little Pentecostal. (laughs) Let's see here. Uh, I'm going to... Yeah, that wasn't what was supposed to come up just yet. Though. <laughs> I'll leave it up there. She's cute. I got one other thing I want to share with you. And borrowing from Ezekiel 37. Two trees becoming as one. That should sound very similar to something else we've, we've read all of our lives. Does it? Can you think of something else? Y'all must be tired. Romans 11. We'll make this quick. Oh, that's right. I'm... I'm an hour ahead. Do what? About 20 minutes? Okay. All right, let's go to Romans 11 because we're talking about two trees becoming one. Two trees becoming one. In Romans 11, verse 13, Paul says, For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. So, first of all, I want you to notice that one of the primary reasons, so says Paul, that he is going to the Gentiles is in order to provoke some of those who are his flesh and blood to jealousy. So that is the context in which he's going to begin now to talk to us about a cultivated olive tree that all theologians, all eschatologists agree represents who? Israel. 
this cultivated olive tree that represents Israel. And that it is cultivated is to infer what? This is a tree that the owner has taken great pains to see to it that it will produce what? Fruit. He prunes it, he dungs it, he, he waters it, he does everything that's needed in order that this tree will produce fruit. He wants it to produce olives. Now, some of the branches, and not all of them, but some of the branches don't produce fruit. Why? Because they don't believe. And so those branches are broken off and are separated from the tree. And then he goes out and he finds a second tree that is an olive tree, but this one's a wild olive tree, but it's still an olive tree. Why does it have to be an olive tree? Well, he's going to take a branch from this olive tree, graft it into the cultivated olive tree, and because, according to the Torah, you cannot mingle the species of seed, consequently, you cannot mingle the species of plants either in the grafting process. And so it has to be an olive tree, albeit a wild one. That means it's just been going, doing its own things, just being led by the Spirit, going wherever it wants to, you know, doing whatever it wants to do. And so he takes and he, and he cuts a branch from this wild olive tree, and he brings it over to the cultivated olive tree, who, which represents who? Israel. And so to make a graft into this tree, he's going to be a side graft. He's going to cut into the rootstock of that tree, and he's going to take that branch that's been cut from the wild olive tree, bind them together, and then, not on the first day, not on the second day, but on the third day, that graft, if it's going to take hold, it's going to take hold on that third day. And so on the third day, that branch that's been grafted in is going to begin the process of ceasing to be wild and actually be transformed into a branch just like the natural branches. So that when the owner of the tree steps back and looks at that tree, he doesn't see two trees anymore. He sees one tree. He doesn't see one tree with a wild, ugly stick coming out of the side. He sees one tree with branches that some are natural, some were grafted in, but in the end, they all produce the same fruit. In fact, the grafting process has the capability of provoking the natural branches to produce more fruit. And so, in other words, after this process occurs, the tree becomes more fruitful. And it all begins, it all kind of seems to consummate on the third day. Do you remember what day the, the moon reappears on? Third day? Joseph revealed himself not on the first, second, but on the third time. The third day, if you will. And so now we've got this grafted branch comes in and, and takes hold of this rootstock, the cultivated tree that is identified as Israel on the third day. Now, when the Messiah was hanging on that tree and received that wound in his side, in his side, about how long ago was that? About 2,000 years. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So that means two days have passed. And if two days have passed, that means we're on the threshold of which one? And this just happens to be the time that Hosea, I believe, described when he said, after two days, he will revive us, <laughs> we'll come back to life, and on the third day, he will live in our sight. You see, we're living in the consummation and the restoration of all things. And the reason that we're just now beginning to understand these things is because now it's time. Now these things that have been hidden by God are about to be revealed. And so don't discourage when your friend doesn't see it because there was a day when you didn't either. And don't, don't get discouraged when, you know, when you think just all the brethren are just going to just, oh, I see it now that, you know, I have seen the light. Well, they may not see it today, but eventually the whole world is going to see it. And that's not going to say, I'm not saying the whole world's going to like it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, and think about this. Paul goes on in Romans 11 in describing this. We get down to verse 25. And in a manner of speaking, he says, now I've told you all of this to tell you this. I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, of something that has been hidden, but now I'm trying to reveal the mystery to you. I'm trying to, to bring what's been hidden to light here, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, or theology is the word I like to use. 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, some of you probably know this. Maybe there are a few who do not. But he says blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. We, are, we understand that him saying blindness in part is to mean partial blindness, not complete blindness, but blindness in part. Now, the way I was always taught and the way I taught it for a number of years was this partial blindness meant this, that the Jews don't see Yeshua, when I used to say Jesus then, they do not see him and recognize him as being the Messiah. And do you know why one of the main reasons they do not recognize him as the Messiah? Because they cannot reconcile a Messiah who would tell his followers to disavow the Torah. Because that doesn't sync with Scripture. The Messiah, from their point of view, and they're correct, would not teach his followers not to follow in Torah. And so that's one of the primary reasons he is disregarded as being the Messiah. The second primary reason is because the outcasts of Israel have not been gathered in. And so they say, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah. So they don't recognize him as the Messiah. And, of course, we know that he definitely is. So in other words, they are blind to the fact that he's the Messiah. But if they're only partially blind, then what is it they see? If they don't see the identity of the Messiah, and that's what they don't see, and they're only partially blind, what is it they do see? Torah. Have they not been faithful to keep the commandments? And I'm talking about those who believe, those who are observant. I'm not talking about Barbara Streisand. I just lost the Streisand fans on that one. You know, I wish I hadn't even mentioned her. Now I'm thinking about what she's doing right now. It's got me all fired up. Anyway, they have been faithful to keep the commandments of God, even though it has not led them to the conclusion that it should, and that is that Yeshua is the Messiah. Okay? But that's what I almost suggest to you. That's what they see. They don't see the identity of the Messiah. However, flip the coin over. Because Paul has gone to great lengths to describe how you and I, who were part of that wild olive tree, have been brought over into this tree that's cultivated, that is identified as Israel, making us part of Israel and making us subject to the same partial blindness. In other words, there's things that we have seen, but there's also things that we have not seen. And what is it we have seen? We know who the Messiah is. What is it we haven't seen? Torah. Well, that is until now. Which leads to the next point, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. How many of you know what that means? Raise your hand. few people. Okay? Well, fullness of the Gentiles. This is what a good friend of mine says it means. Well, that's when you got all your folks out there in the world that's going to hear the gospel and they're going to believe on Jesus and become Christians. When all the, the Gentiles that are supposed to get saved get saved, then they're going to get zapped out of here and then that's when you got your tribulation coming along. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. I wonder if they picked that up on pal talking. <laughs> we need to keep in mind that Paul is not, I repeat, and Paul's sitting right over here so he can validate this for me. <laughs> Paul is not a New Testament scholar. Is that right? Paul is not a New Testament scholar. He is a Torah scholar. And so when he's talking about olive trees and branches being broken off and all these other things. And oh, by the way, uh, a, a, an Israeli who grows, uh, who has an olive farm in Israel told us one time when we, were take, we had a trip over there uh, that you can take those dead branches or those branches that were broken off. You can cut into them if there's any signs of life. You can graft them back into the tree and they'll take hold. Anyway, um, where was I going? With? Oh, yeah. Paul is not a New Testament scholar. He's not going to take all this imagery and just pull it out of thin air. He's going to call on what he has been trained in. He's going to call on the scriptures. Now, where do you think he got the idea of two olive trees becoming one? Ezekiel 37 describes two trees becoming one, a tree for Joseph, a tree for Judah. They become one. Where did the olives come into this? What do you think? I'm just going to throw this out there, and then I'm going to move on. But read Zechariah 4. Because you've got this menorah, seven golden candlesticks, and on one side is an olive tree, and on the other side is an olive tree. And who stands in the midst of the golden candlesticks in the book of Revelation? Sure. Just something to consider. i got something I'll maybe get into tomorrow, whenever I'm speaking, that goes along with that. 
But anyway, the point is that Paul pulls from his training in Torah and the prophets. He knows what he's speaking of. So then, when he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, he's going to call on that knowledge. The fullness of the Gentiles in Hebrew, Milo, Milo is fullness or completion, Hagoyim, Gentiles or the nations. There's only one time in the entirety of the Tanakh that Milo Hagoyim appears, and that is in the book of the beginnings, duh, and where Jacob, who's about to die, he sees Joseph and, or Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to him to receive the birthright, to receive the blessing from Jacob. Of course, Manasseh is the firstborn, so Joseph is expecting that he is going to receive the blessing from Jacob. And so when they come in the room, Jacob strengthens himself and he says, to paraphrase, he says, who, who do these two boys, who do these belong to? He said, well, they're mine. And Jacob says, well, no, not anymore. They're going to be mine. They're going to be as Reuben and Simeon. He adopts these two boys as his own sons. Now, picture in your mind what you think they look like. In other words, did they have tefillin and, and tzitzit on? Or do you think they look more like an Egyptian? And nevertheless, what does Israel do? He adopts them as his own sons. Now, when he goes to bless, he doesn't put his right hand on Manasseh's head because Manasseh means to forget all my toil and all my father's house. But instead, he places his hand on Ephraim's head, which means fruitful. Because what happens when that branch gets grafted into that cultivated tree, it actually causes the tree to explode into fruit. He puts his hand on Ephraim's head and he said, In you shall be a melohagoim, a multitude of nations, or as Paul puts it, a fullness, completion of the Gentiles. Meaning what? When that grafted in branch that begins to take hold on the third day and they open their other eye, and see the thing that they hadn't seen before, and put that together with what they have already seen, and that is Yeshua is the Messiah, then what is it going to do? It's going to provoke the natural branches to say, hey, what's going on over there? What are you guys doing? Keeping Shabbat and keeping the Moedim and all these things. And Well, the Messiah told us to. And then Paul says in verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. The same result as when Joseph revealed to his brothers who he was, the one who was sent into the nations, and there God blessed him. God raised him up and set him in the nations on purpose. Why? So that in a day of tribulation, God would have his man in position so that all Israel might be saved. And so I'm going to suggest to you very strongly that all your names are Joseph that we are that house of Joseph and we were sent into the nations, but for this purpose, so that in the end, when our other eye begins to start opening and we begin, when those, those adopted sons that came to Israel looking like a bunch of pagans and to some degree have continued to look like a bunch of pagans and to a large degree, because we got some brethren out there still doing things that they're ignorant of and we know where all those things come from. But in the end, when that grafted in branch comes to the realization of who they really are and why we're really here and what God's purposes are, that somehow or another, and I don't have all the details figured out, and I don't think anybody does, but when it all comes together, our being revealed is the very key to all Israel being saved. That's what it seems to be saying here. That's what it seems to be teaching. And so we're living in one of the most, we're living in the most exciting time to be alive. And, and so we're talking about not a move of God. We're talking about the move of God. We're talking about the restoration of all things. Well, there's a lot I'd like to say, but it's about nine and I'm going to save the rest of it for tomorrow. And, uh, but before I go, since it's not Shabbat anymore, okay. I, I do want you to look up here. Can can they kill those lights right up here? Is that possible? Can we do that? I didn't bring any product with me, um, but I'm, I was just going to. Can, can you see that okay? Do you see the young lady there? That is my youngest. Her name is Allison Yael. In the Bible, it's J.L. You've read about her. You remember? She's the young lady when Sisera went into the tent. She took a tent peg and drove it through his head. Yael. So I wanted to name my little girl after a woman who knew how to take care of herself around men. But, but she's, she's 
in deep concentration reading this book that her old man wrote called Enmity Between the Seeds. And, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of, uh, just a lot of positive feedback on this book. And, and let, me, let me say this, and we, we stated in the foreword of the book or in the acknowledgments, that even though there was a lot of things in the book I'd been studying for some time, if it hadn't been for this guy right over here doing a teaching on the principle of the seed, you know, Paul right here, it would have it would have never come together. And so the principle of the seed is the most fascinating teaching I have ever heard in my life. And it was the key to unlocking some of these other things that I'd been studying from the prophetic end. And so but the book is and I tell everybody that everywhere I go. Um, but the book's called Enmity Between the Seeds, the end revealed in the beginning. And Allison's, you know, really reading it. She's getting real interested. She's really pouring into it here. She that one little comment, she's like, you know, that was really good, Dad. And so, and, and she just can't put it down. It's that good. But when she finally finished reading it, she was very happy. <laughs> oh, she makes me turn to mush. Yeah. And just for kicks, that's the rest of my family there. My oldest there with the white t-shirt on, that's Brandon Tyler. He's 18. His brother, Nathan Israel, who's about to turn 16, is next to him. Alan Elisha sitting on his uh, on Brandon's knee. He's about to turn three a week from today. And, of course, that's the baby. So just wanted to show you my family because I'm real proud of them. And, anyway, if you want to get some materials, um, like I said, I didn't bring anything, but we have a website. It's just BillCloud.org. There's a phone number and a mailing address, and you can call us or whatever. And some of the related materials that we've got uh, that work in conjunction with this teaching, although I haven't got into this part of it yet, uh, uh, one of these things. The Joseph Factor, we just produced a DVD. Uh, it's about two hours that we're going to you know, really exhaust all this information that we shared with you, if you're interested in that. We've got another one. It's called Mysteries of the Kingdom, which is... Um, a DVD that goes back about a year and a half to a conference I spoke at we, in down in Tampa and some of the things we got into about the Romans 11 and, and some other things. So that's related to this teaching. And then uh, some audio teachings that we, we entitled America, God's End Time Vineyard. And I think Israel, where is he at? Is he in here still? I think he listened to that, didn't you? Oh, but you were going to, right? Oh, okay. All right. Well, on that then, okay. <laughs> But what we're going to get into tomorrow, and I actually have a little bit of a challenge here, and, and that is, how do I teach this aspect of it to Canadians? Um, but with the Lord's help, I want to try to show you some things in American history. And since we're basically from the same stock, uh, y'all just ended up on one side of the border and we did on the other. Uh, I think you're going to find it of interest anyway. But it, we're, it's going to be related to the Joseph factor. So those are just a few things that we have on our website in our office that if you're interested in, you can call or write us or email us. But thank you so much for your time and your patience and your attention. I hope it was beneficial for you. It's been a wonderful day.